Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here for your now weekly upload of TRSI. I'm here with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday, it is the 13th of February. Michael, how have you been? I've been pretty decent, Gary, pretty decent. How yourself? I've been pretty good. Now that we only do this uh, once a week, I have more legitimate interest in how you answer, because I talk to you less, as opposed to every two days going, how have you been? <laughs> and I'm rising. Shit, 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 all has changed since the 24 hours since we last talked. But yes, now we are less, we are more distant. So when we're putting together this show, we just trawl through all of the news that has come up since the last event, anything we've seen, anything we're interested in, anything we've seen heard anywhere, not just the Irish papers, because I like to you know, talk about stuff a bit wider afield. Because sometimes it's good to know what's happening in the Balkans, Michael. Yeah, and sometimes there's funny shit happening because foreigners are funny and they do weird things. And their ways are different than ours, which makes them suspicious. Absolutely. We won't go into that because that's still getting quoted back. There used to be a whole television channel in England called Channel 4, which is dedicated at night to showing how weird foreigners were. But we're not, we don't do that anymore, thank God. So usually it's this sort of desperate trawl through stuff we found and pulling it all together but sometimes sometimes you look to the skies and the clouds part and the beam of light comes down and you hear the voice of god whisper to you it's free content yeah and thankfully that has been this week because we have had some people involved in the media and politics doing silly things silly things that historically weren't a problem to do because no one was gonna bother telling anyone you did it or pointing out that you were wrong but unfortunately now grip exists so it's just a little bit harder yeah sadly only a little bit oh like you yeah i mean <laughs> you can get away with a lot of, as we've seen with grip breaking i think quite substantial stories and then everyone else going well we're going to quietly read it and perhaps privately agree with you but we're not going to cover it ourselves the people don't need to know that this is not the kind of people that the hoi polloi, the ordinary men and women in the street, the people who have their dinner in the middle of the day, they don't need to know this kind of thing. It would only upset them. And let's face it, Gary, what's the use of upsetting people? No, I mean, if, if mainstream media to, were to report things, like last year when Grip claimed that the Department of Justice had no estimates of how many illegal immigrants uh, were in the country and remained with no idea of that number, even after they brought in an amnesty and pointed out that the Department of Justice seemed to be lying to journalists about this and misrepresenting research, if you tell that sort of thing to the average uneducated member of the public, Michael, they might start to get ideas about respectable people that are simply incorrect and have to be explained to them through the medium of their betters. That's just how it works. That is how it works. It is, how, it is always how it works in this country. So of the two people we, we wanted to mention doing silly things, one is Pascal Donahue, who has suffered from a tragic memory loss that coincided exactly during the period he was being interviewed on a radio station. And the other person who did something less silly, and I'm sure there is a reasonable explanation of it. And, you know, in fact, Michael, I shouldn't have said it was silly at all. Let us not presume how it happened or why it happened. But we have the um, the Black Widow herself, Ellen Coyne. <laughs> the Black Widow, really? Okay. Every media company Ellen Coyne goes to work for dies or ends up having a massive layoff. So if you're working with the independent at the moment, you should be a bit worried. It's like if you're, you know, if you're on a ship heading out of port and suddenly two dozen albatrosses land beside you. I'm not saying it's a sign, but superstitious people may want to start praying to the gods. A reasonable person would look at that and go, that's unusual. You know, maybe you look at it and you're like, 
Did I forget to tithe to Poseidon? Have I made a mistake? But, uh... I suppose we'll start with Miss Coyne. So Alan Coyne, for those who aren't aware, has been a long-time fixture of the Irish journalistic circuit. She's worked for numerous people, and she's now in The Independent. And she was very active during the abortion referendum. She was a subject of much complaint from the pro-life side, who thought she was biased and unfair to them. Well, yeah, which I always thought a bit too. Because Ellen had never made any pretensions of being, inverted commas, fair on the issue. Ellen had a, her, her opinions and she was as she was a, an advocate, a campaigner. She was driving home her opinions. As she said, uh, campaigning journalism is a type of journalism. Absolutely fair. So, Miss Coyne wrote a recent story in The Independent. It went up yesterday. It was, sorry, it went up on Friday. It was the most read story on The Independent that day, according to the little most read thing they have on their website. And it was about a uh, pro-life prayer group saying that divine providence had led them to uh, protest outside Limerick Maternity Hospital on days when abortions were being carried out. Now, this relates to a claim that was made by the Together for Safety lobby group. They claimed in a press release that they sent out to journalists and politicians, but only selected journalists and politicians, Michael, that someone inside the hospital had leaked details of the times and days when patients were undergoing abortions in the hospital and the pro-life protesters had subsequently started to turn up at exactly those times and exactly those days. Very serious allegation, absolutely no proof uh, behind it, no evidence has been put forward. Coyne started looking into it, she couldn't back it up, and then it was brought up in the doll by Ivana Batrick, and then the next day there was a debate on a private member's bill about putting an exclusion zone around uh, hospitals so that there couldn't be protests, although having had a look at the bill again, uh, it's actually a exclusion zone around far more than hospitals and would basically pockmark the country with places where you couldn't say certain things in a coffee shop or you'd be arrested. Do you know what, Guy? Just to, when you said Ivana Batricet said something in the doll, for a split second I was about to intervene and correct you and say in the Shannon. And then I remembered and my heart sunk a little bit. I thought, God, finally it happened. I'd forgotten for a moment. You had a brief moment where the truth was still no one would elect Ivana Batchik. Yeah, those good old days, those happy days. So Batchik brought it up. It was clear that um, it was then going to be reported in the papers because now it was no longer is what Together for Safety is claiming accurate. It is now simply a story that a public representative has said it. So Batchik ended up, uh, sorry, not Batchik, Coyne ended up talking to these groups down in Limerick, this prayer group. And the prayer group made the, some statements about divine providence. They made a couple of other statements. I'll, I'll put a link to the piece below. But it, my reading of it, Michael, from the quotes that were put in the piece, yes, was that the group was basically smirkingly suggesting that they did have a contact in the hospital. And yes, this was happening, but it was purely accidental. Um, and you know, we're going to keep doing it, basically. That it was a sort of a smirking denial that is actually basically, you, yeah, we're doing it and you can't stop us. And this pe- and also that this group is constituted fundamentally as uh, a bunch of religious anti-choice protesters. And that's their function in life and that's why they're there. Yeah, so I looked into that and it turned out that the person talking to Coyne had a feeling, Michael, that Coyne may not be on the level. No. And subsequently decided that they would engage with Coin in good faith, but that they would record it. So should anything happen, they would have that. Now, did 
the journalist know that she was being recorded? No. It's a bit underhand now, Gary, recording a journalist and not telling them. You mean that thing, journalists, you should always assume if you're talking to a journalist, they're recording it? Well, yes, but they're journalists, Gary. They're professionals. They're trained. So I acquired a copy of this recording and I discovered very quickly that the quotes in the recording didn't quite match up to the quotes as Ellen had written them. And in fact, in parts, it seemed like someone had selectively edited the quotes to remove denials from the person that they knew anything about what was happening in the hospital. And in one instance, the the part where the group was quoted as saying, you know, after it turned out that they were, Ellen says they were protesting on the same day as abortions were being carried out, that uh, something like, and I have a feeling it's, it's going to remain the day that we protest on, which I think has a certain implication to it. Yeah. It turned out that she just never said that. As in, didn't say the sentence at all. Didn't happen. Whoops. That's that, that's a bit creative. I mean, you might even say excessively creative. Because what Ellen may have done there is understood that that was what the woman was thinking but not saying. And for the sake of clarity and truth and honesty in journalism, decided that the people should know what she was thinking but not saying. But, you know, you're not really supposed to do that. No, and it is a constant source of um, frustration in journalism when you talk to people and they nearly give you the quote you're looking for. Like, there's always that feeling like, I mean, how bad would it be if I just, you know, move some stuff around and, you know, not change the meaning of it, but maybe it made it a little bit snappier. Uh, that That's considered ethically problematic. It can be. I remember once talking to Andy Kenny. And while I wanted him to, do, to say to me, yes, Michael, I am actually the chief psychopomp of Satanists in Ireland, he never actually came out and said it straight out. He talked about, you know, doing up roads in Castle Bar, which is close, but, you know, I didn't feel like I could actually include the quote, even though I knew in his heart he wanted to tell me. Perhaps, Michael, did he perhaps say a sentence that started with something like, I am, and then you could just believe the end of the sentence and then write it as you thought, in a way that you were sure still fully represented what he meant in his heart? Yeah, it... it, it Sometimes you have to do that. I mean, you have to say what's true, not necessarily what appears to be the facts. So they, you're saying in this case, this quote, this I, I have a feeling that this may be the day or whatever, that that just simply does not appear. No, it's, it's not in it. The closest quote I could find, and I think this might be the base of it because it both mentions the day in question and has the word feeling in it. And Michael, that is the level of similarity we're working here, by the way. So what she says was, she's quoted as saying, and I have a feeling Wednesday will continue to be the day that we are there. What she actually said is, really the date or the time was unrelated, and now I think I have the feeling that Wednesday must be the day when they carry out abortions, but I was unaware of it. Oh, that's a very long jump. That's, that's like it, that's, come on now, you're talking, that's, that's a steeplechase and also, Michael, this, this quote is added directly after another block of text. But when you listen to the recording, which is about nine minutes long, that quote actually comes four minutes after the previous one. Okay, so we'll, we'll concede for the time being in good faith that you're just not making all of this up. But presumably there is an explanation and you must put yourself in communication with Ellen Coyne and she provided you with an explanation. Oh, I put myself in touch with uh, Ellen Coyne and she picked up the phone, presumably because she doesn't have my number saved. Um, she refused to give any comment other than to say that she stood over the, the story. And it was, it was very sad, Michael, I must say, because she hung up on me, which didn't give me time to tell her that we had a recording. 
Uh, God, that was unfortunate. It is. I mean, there is always a value in being polite. Mm, mm. So we did tell uh, Ellen that we had a recording. It was several hours later before we informed her, which dramatically cut down the amount of time she had to respond to it. It cut down the amount of time available for the response, but it didn't make a response. No, I, I, I joke there, but we gave Ellen plenty of time after we told her that we had a recording. I asked uh, I asked her to explain it. I said, look, if you want to hear the exact quotes and, and where I think they've changed, give me a call and I'll go through it. Up to about 10 minutes before that piece going live, I was sending messages to her that she wasn't responding to going, look, this is a very serious thing. Uh, I'm not going to say why this happened, but people may you know, read into it as to how these particular uh, changes came to be. And it might be good if you gave a reason. But I, I never heard from her. I suppose my next question is, okay, you you, 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 you tried to get a response from her. Uh, is there a plan to talk to maybe the editor of the newspaper? I hadn't thought that would be necessary, Michael. And I never like to go to someone's employer about a story. I mean, it's a bit different because she's a journalist and, and this materially relates to it. But I note now that the editors of The Independent, people have been linking this story to them. People have been asking them about it, asking them to comment. And as of the recording of this podcast, Coyne's story is still up on The Irish Independent, unedited. I'm just... It's comparisons are invidious and we shouldn't make them. And it's not that I believe that other newspapers in other countries are necessarily paragons of virtue in these things. But if you think of examples, prominent examples in the last number of years and say in the New York Times and in papers in the United States, this kind of thing would be usually perceived as the kind of activity which would reflect badly on a journalist's career. If I was working myself in another country in a journalistic capacity and I did something like this, I would have the expectation that at the very least I was about to get an ungodly chewing up. And if the people I worked for thought that the changes had been deliberate rather than accidental, I would fully expect to be sacked. So I, I suppose we, I, I, I will just, I, I'll give the actual headline of the piece and the quote Coyne gave and then the quote that actually happened so that people can just hear it themselves. So the, the headline is, anti-abortion protesters say divine providence led them to gather to pray at hospital on day of terminations. And the, the first paragraph the coin gives is, divine providence, again in quotes, led to anti-abortion campaigners gathering to pray outside a Limerick maternity hospital on days when terminations were being carried out, a member of the group said. Right. Coin quotes her as saying, if Wednesday happens to be the day that they do the abortions, then it's divine providence that that's the day that we happen to be there. And I should say it's a good kind of divine providence. And then she goes into the quote about feeling Wednesday will continue to be the day that we are there as a block of text. Here's the actual quote. If Wednesday happens to be the day when abortions are carried out, I'm afraid you'll have to call it divine providence because I can put my hand on my heart and say that I knew nothing about it. Anyway, if that is the given day when abortions are carried out, and if it is the case, I'm sorry to say I would consider it a good divine providence that we're there in solidarity with those who are being thrown away. Yeah, and, and that's not just stylistically different or emotionally. That, that's substantively different. That surgically removes the denial in the middle of it and the, and if that is the case, I'm sorry to say I would consider it a good divine providence. Yeah. Also, when you listen to the recording, when she says I would consider it a good divine providence, she's laughing. Right. So she said it was, when I talked to her, the, the woman, uh, Antoinette Fitzgibbons, uh, said it was, it was, a, it was a joke. 
She was joking with Coyne, which is a lethal thing to do with a journalist who is not going to be friendly to you. Oh, never. Gee, we learned that lesson early in life, don't we? Well, actually, it's a lesson neither of us have learned. No, no, we we joke constantly about things we shouldn't. Our problem, our our problem is our tendency, but our saviour is the fact that there's only three people in, and a dog in Mayo that listen to us, so we get away with it. Actually, we, we have the we have enough listeners that we probably shouldn't make those jokes. Yeah, you're probably right. But I, I just want to talk about what happened here. Now, I'm, I make no claim as to how this happened. It may have been that Coyne misheard the quote. It could have been anything, Michael. But the immediate thing I noticed when I listened to a recording is that all of the pieces of the quote that are not in Coyne's recounting make Coyne's story weaker if they're included mm. i'm afraid you'll have to call it divine providence because i can put my hand on my heart and say that i knew nothing about it that just becoming then it's divine providence yeah that's that's an odd one and for coin to perfectly remember like the rough start of it and the rough end of it mm. do journalists these days do that old fashion thing of shorthand noting that you used to see in all the presidents and men and such like, where they would take contemporaneous verbatim notes of a conversation. Uh, some do. Um, it, a lot of journalists now don't have shorthand, but some go out of their way to learn it and are, are very good at it. Most reporters record things now. And I don't know why, if there was a phone call, uh, Coin wouldn't have recorded it. Yeah, you think... It would be basically, in that kind of situation, would it be considered normal or ethical or legally important indeed for the journalist to advise the person that they were being recorded? Or is that just not necessary? I'm, I'm sure someone, someone will say it is, it is ethical, but you should work on the assumption they're recording you and they're not going to tell you. Right. That would just be the way of it. Because a lot of people get uncomfortable recording and legally in Ireland, it's not a requirement. In some jurisdictions it is, isn't it? That it is. So there's, there's two party and one party consent. So in Ireland, if two people are having a conversation and one person is aware it's being recorded, it's legal. In other uh, countries, everyone in a conversation needs to be aware that it's being recorded. And both of those things are to stop outside people recording a conversation. Mm -hmm. While one party consent basically means that, you know, if you think something is dodgy, you can record your conversations. So there are a lot of advantages to having it there. But it's no, it's not. It's not a global norm. But in Ireland, it is the case. So it'd be surprising, shall we say, for a very experienced national journalist not to have made a recording when when it's so easy when you're on a telephone call. Yes, I, I mean... I don't know how coin works. I don't know what the independence general standards are in relation to this. But it would be my assumption that any call a journalist takes with a potential source is recorded. Is recorded. And not only that, but that it is a good thing to do. And not just for yourself, but it's great to have a record in case someone then says, I didn't say that. But also because, I mean, like in the piece I wrote, Michael, I had the recording so I could give the exact quotes down to most of the grammatical kind of um, mishaps. Jeez, if in nothing else, it, it protects you as a journalist. To be, I remember a very long time ago, and in the bookie business, there were bookies who had installed uh, recording audio recordings on their stands in order that if there was ever a dispute about a bet, that a bet was recorded as being like ten pound at seven to one, and the the, the punter came along and said, "No, no, I had a hundred pound at ten to one." They could go back and say, "Well, actually, here's a recording." So, I mean, having a recording of anything, if you're involved in any kind of business where there's, there, there may be a dispute about two different accounts. Having that obvious, clear record, it's just a sensible piece of self-protection. Yeah, I, I would think of it much like kind of uh, body cameras for police. Yeah. That they protect both parties 
as long as you know they're used appropriately. And there is always an advantage in having the exact words of your source there so that you can make sure you don't hideously misquote your source because mm. you misheard something or, you know, because sometimes it's like, imagine how many awful phone calls you've had, Michael, where the reception isn't great or, you know, a truck drives by or there's traffic and then work on the assumption that those calls all contained critical information. And that is the problem that journalists have. So yes, you should absolutely record everything. Um, I don't know if that's what Coin does. If it is what she does, I think there would be a real question about why she didn't check the records. But there's also stuff that didn't get into the piece, Michael. Like, explanations of, of why those people were there. Yeah, I thought that was, from the point of view of framing the narrative, which is this terribly popular thing now, and you have to frame the narrative. The explanation or the lack of explanation, the lack of historical context of why these people were there is, is telling, if, if you want to be kind about it. Particularly since it's absolutely on in the recording of the conversation she had with her. So the group meets on Wednesday because one of the organising members goes to an early mass that day and going directly to the hospital allows her to avoid traffic. But interestingly enough, Michael, they repeatedly call them uh, the Limerick Anti-Abortion Group. Now, from what it looks like, there's a couple of, not not old, but older women who walk around the edge of the hospital praying uh, a rosary. Not inside the hospital grounds, they don't have placards, they don't talk to anyone. And interestingly enough, Michael, when I was talking to them, they said that um, while abortion is one of the things they pray for since the referendum, they've been doing it for years. And to me, this is a not unimportant fact here. And maybe I'm projecting my own advisor, but it seems to cast a completely different colour on the context of what these women are doing. And I'm told that Coyne was aware of this from people who were talking to Coyne, but I don't have it on uh, a record, so maybe you know she wasn't or she didn't hear it or whatever, but maybe she's not. But from talking to people, what they told me was, these women have been doing this for years, long before abortion was held there. These are people who absolutely believe in the power of prayer to heal. Now that may or may not be your thing, but these are people who legitimately believe that, and they have been doing this outside the hospital, as they said, for the sick, the ill, and the forgotten for years. And uh, yes, after the referendum, they included uh, abortion in that. They said that they prayed for both expectant mothers and for unborn children. It was their phrasing, or unborn babies, I think, was the exact phrasing. But not not an anti-abortion group, because of why would they have started years ago, before the referendum? And if Coyne knew that, why didn't she tell people that? My understanding from this is that they don't have placards. They are not sort of a loud, noisy group. They don't approach people. They're not sidewalk counsellors. They they walk and they pray. And this is the kind of activity that the most, ex- shall we say, the most extensive of the proposed or advocated for legislation from the uh, pro-choice groups, would make this illegal. Yes, and it it came up during the recent debate. Um, I think it was Ronan Mullins said that a lot of what people are complaining about and where they're saying their harassment and intimidation, it's actually small groups of women saying the rosary, not talking to anyone, often not even visible from the hospital. Yeah. And um, the response was, I think it was um, Senator Boylan, the Sinn Féin senator, that um, it doesn't matter what's happening. If anyone thinks it's intimidation or says it's intimidation, then it should be uh, banned, which I think is a insane principle that you couldn't run anything on. Gary, you say that, but that's precisely the principle of all of this kind of legislation and its cousins. Is We've talked about this before, the legislation which 
well, legislation have we passed already? The legislation which basically made, or it's certainly in 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 in, in process, where that, for example, hate hate or speech or um, would be in completely in the eye of the beholder. There wouldn't be any objective criterion which you decided whether or not something was a, a hate crime or a hate speech or a hateful actor or. Driven by a particular by uh, a hateful position, but rather, if somebody felt in any way affected by it, then it was by that standard they would be considered to be a hate crime. So, this kind of radically subjective approach—it's this is far from unique in this case. The one of the interesting things I actually from listening to that bill on the 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 sorry the debate on the bill that would ban protests around this is that um Paul Gavin the Sinn Féin senator said that the bill that was being debated was written by Together for Safety it was written by them it was written for them now Together for Safety for those who aren't aware are the people who have spent years claiming that there has been a tsunami of uh, intimidation and harassment of pregnant women and staff outside hospitals a claim which was repeated throughout the Irish media and in Parliament for years until the Limerick leader asked Limerick Hospital had they any reports of complaints and the Limerick Hospital said no we don't we don't believe there's an issue and that led me to then ask every maternity hospital in the state right and it turned out that of the 16 got back to me out of the 19 so then with Limerick that's 17 so the vast vast majority not one of them had ever received a complaint from a patient or a member of staff that they had been intimidated by or harassed by a pro-life protester, and none sent me. I asked all of them, had they, were they aware of any of uh, any of these things happening, even if there wasn't a formal uh, complaint? Mm-hmm. And none of them sent me any information on that. Some didn't address it at all. Some said no, but none gave me anything on it. And yet that claim was made for years by these people, and... None of uh, no one ever thought to question. Oh no, Gary! Hold on, hold on, hold on. No one ever thought to question it. I'm sure, Gary, there were plenty of journalists who thought to question it, but decided against it because they were perfectly well aware that they might come up with the wrong answer. Should they do so? I think you're being a little bit excessively charitable there, as is your nature. There is actually one thing that came up in the debate, which I hadn't heard other people talking about. The bill would put an exclusion zone around hospitals. Do you know what the size of the exclusion zone is, Michael? From the gates, I mean, I don't know, 30, 40 feet. 100 metres. 100 metres. Did you also know, Michael, that it's not just hospitals? It's also every pharmacy, GP, student union building, family planning clinic, etc. in the country. Now, I would be very curious if anyone has got, let's say, a map of Dublin and picked out where all of those points are, and drew a circle 100 metres from them, and just seen uh, where these uh, areas of non-legitimate protest cover. Hmm. Hmm. And would that be just outside, or would that, like, 100 metres and any any building that would... Like, if you were, say, I don't know, you're in a coffee shop sitting with 100 metres from a hospital in Dublin... Would that be covered? As under the bill is written, yes. Which is a point that Ronan Mullen made up, and they uh, were really unhappy with that. They said it was an absolutely ridiculous matter, and then they just uh, accused him of running out the clock as they spoke over him. Yeah, which is all very well, except if we look to the example of Scotland, there's legislation... Which I think, has, it become law, has it become law in Scotland now? Which effectively means that even comments made... In private houses can be subject to uh, speech laws. So the notion that these, when we are told by our friends on the progressive left that the, our concerns 
are baseless and groundless and paranoid. Do you know what? Life, every as life takes by, and our terrible paranoid fears turn out to be absolutely based and grounded, that argument carries less and less weight. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where they're like, oh, well, clearly there will be police discretion. And I have to say, I don't really think implementing a law which covers 100 metres around buildings that people won't even realise and prohibits you saying certain things around them on the basis that it's fine because the police won't enforce it unless they want to. (laughs) Michael, I just don't think that's a good way to treat the law. Well, I don't think it's a good way to treat citizens. And considering we already have a police force which is actively engaged in recording uh, incidents which are, as on their own admission, not criminal, but they want to keep a record of them anyway. The other, uh, shall we say, historical editing that has taken place rather dramatically this week that you referred to was Pascal. I have to say this surprised me because I didn't think Pascal was a man either to take such a silly risk or to have, and or to suffer from such lapses of memory. Yeah, so it was a revelation to hear that Pascal had never considered that USC was to be abolished and that it, he had never considered it a temporary measure. Because if you go back through Pascal's speeches and the Doll and the Finnegale Manifesto and the press releases that came out at the last general election, sorry, the 2016 election, and Pascal's tweets, he seems to have forgotten a brief period of time, Michael, just a brief period, where he in fact thought that getting rid of the USC was the only thing that could be done, that Sinn Féin were a threat to economic recovery because they wouldn't say they'd get rid of the USC. And um, every worker would be better off if it was gone. I think Pascal may have had... He may have forgotten part of what he said, but not what he believed. Because Pascal is a smart guy. And I would suspect that when you when you go back, you can see that Pascal before the 2016 election is talking about, the ne- about how they will reduce the USC, but that it's a necessary component of the tax base. You go after the 2016 election, you get the same thing. And then you get all that stuff in the 2016 election. But I suspect Pascal was smart enough to know that when they were talking about it, there was no chance that they were ever going to actually do it. So I don't think he ever believed that it was something that should be done or could be done. Are you saying, Gary, that Pascal and the Fine Gael, uh, party promised to do something and said that something would be good with no intention of actually going ahead and doing it afterwards when they got into government? I would say, Michael, that in a country with a a looser defamation regime, I might even use stronger language. Mm. Although, I've said to you before, one of my favourite things at times in the past, when I've been chatting away to some blue shirt friends and they go off on the usual perorations about, oh, how Fine Gael saved the country after Fianna Fáil had destroyed it with their wild, extravagant, mad expansion of spending and the economy and the Celtic Tire. And I'd like to just introduce the 2007 Fine Gael Manifesto to them. And you get that look of, oh, for fuck's sake, once could you just not remember every bloody thing? I, I had a, a sudden realisation, a reminder more so, because I realised long ago, of how I have gotten far too deep into politics. Because yeah. as soon as you mentioned the 2007 Fine Gael Manifesto, my immediate thought was, ah, it was no 2011 Fine Gael Manifesto. <laughs> now that was a good manifesto. Oh. 
It's actually probably one of the best manifestos Finnegal ever put together. But then they uh, got in with Labour, which actually many of their high-ranking members were secretly delighted that they were able to do, because it meant that they didn't have to do any of it. Well, we know we know that because a prominent member, we won't name names, obviously, the aforesaid laws uh, actually confided uh, that... Uh, we need, oh no, no, we need labour. We need a mudguard. We don't want to be in government by ourselves. Because there was a brief period in the last 10, week, 10 days of the election where it, there was a terrible prospect that Finnegan might just about get enough to be able to run, run the gaff by themselves. And the, the country coming out of or through that recession and into it were in a place where unique possibly to the last 40 or 50 years of Irish elections where the electorate legitimately seemed willing to accept like large societal changes if necessary. The Rutan, uh, the old root and branch reforms. And that fucking terrified Finnegan. Well, it ter- I would say it terrified many, many people in Finnegan. Some people in Finnegan were absolutely almost erotically aroused by the prospect of it. You know, sort of those, shall we say, the, on the PD wing of Finnegan, the Thatcherite wing of Finnegan, they thought, finally! Oh, it's going to be fantastic. Do you remember there was going to be the bonfire of the vanities with all the NGOs? The quangas, yeah. Oh, there were tax plans, there was health plans, there was everything. And then they, um, yeah, they deliberately screwed it up, which I think something they should not be forgiven for because it is legitimately one of the only opportunities in modern Irish history in which a root and branch system of reform could have been carried out and the country substantially... Uh, improved now doing so would have probably cost finnegale the next election because like yeah they wanted the irish people wanted the den but it's the irish people we shall never know we shall never know but the, why, why did he say, he was in he, he was in an interview yeah on the radio and he and this was thrown and and it was it was such a categorical denial that's what i found puzzling I can give you one example of why he might have done it, Michael. Here are some headlines. Because the Pascal coming out and saying that he never said the universal social charge was temporary was a big thing. So there's a lot of headlines, but here are some of them. Pascal Donoghue, I never said universal social charge was temporary. The Irish Times said, the universal social charge cannot be abolished, says Pascal. Multiple variants of that. Then there's a headline that Pascal Donoghue claims he never said that USC was temporary. Do you know what's missing from all of these stories, Michael? What? Any mention... That it's not true. So you ask me, why would someone say this when it's so obviously wrong? To which I would give the answer, if no one is going to tell people what you said is incorrect, like bald-faced, no equivocation, not true, why wouldn't you lie if it's easier for you? At that point, we're relying purely on the personal ethics of those in charge. Even the only story I could find where anyone actually pointed out that Fine Gael had called for... um, the USC to be abolished. It quotes Leo, it quotes Fine Gael, doesn't quote Pascal. Now, I published a story on this on Gripped, and I went back through the 2016 manifesto. I went through the programme for government, which Pascal was deeply involved with, uh, the negotiations with. I went through Pascal's tweets. I went through the Fine Gael uh, press releases from 2016. And at every step, I found comments or things from Pascal where he said during this election period, we will get rid of USC. That is a promise. It must be gotten rid of. He called it a hateful emergency measure. Only gripped. Told people that. So again, if you're going to lie, 
and no one is going to tell anyone else that you're lying, why the fuck wouldn't you lie? If it's easier for you than saying, yes, I previously said that, but I've changed my mind, in the same way I changed my mind into it just for that election period. It was described, the, the promise, the, for people who can't remember the 2016 election, the promise to get rid of the USC was described by Fine Gael themselves as the most important promise they would make to the electorate during the 2016 election. Now, within, I think, about two months of being in government, they dropped it. But Fine Gael had been in government for the previous five years. Nothing new came up. They already knew everything about the USC when they made those promises. Yeah, and they knew what the budgetary situation was, they knew the fiscal situation was. It wasn't as if anything was going to jump out and surprise them and say, oh, well, had we known that, we wouldn't have promised it. They knew perfectly well, and yet they made not only a promise, but a promise which, as you say, they considered to be the single most important promise they were making in their manifesto. And it was, and I think this is important to point out, total bullshit. And not only was it total bullshit and something that was said both by the party, and if you go back, you can see press releases from Simon Harris, Leo was talking about it, Simon Coveney was talking about it, Richard Bruton was talking about it, all of these lads. But Gary, I think you may also remember that it was bullshit that polled well. It was bullshit that polled well, but all of these people were in positions where they, I'm not going to say would have, but should have known that what they were saying was bullshit. It was in effect, Michael, and I think you can make this pretty clearly. It is pretty clearly, in most regards, just a straight out lie. And I mean that with the full force. They either knew, or if they didn't know, they didn't know because they are incredibly negligent or didn't want to know. And absolutely nothing happened afterwards, and everyone basically just brushed it off. And now high-ranking Fine Gael members will turn around and say, actually, no, we never said that. There's a character, is it Raskin, Rask, I can never get the name, where the pronunciation of it, Raskinnikov. Dostoevsky character who basically has this, he just rewrites history. He has this capacity in whatever he lies and his lies are, are, are remold the reality. And in his, the moment in which he lies, I think the idea is that he actually completely believes the lie. But he's not, a, he's not a hero and he's certainly not the minister for finance. Um, it, if, if the reasons you give for why he spoke like this are correct. In the words of Lord Denning, in, in a very different context, that opens up an appalling vista. If that Because he was right, ultimately, not to fear the retaliation or the reaction of the media. It's, it's, only just, it's not ancient history. I mean, it's not even the 2007 election. It's not even, let alone talking about the, the dim, dark past, Gareth Fitzgerald and Charlie Hoy. It's the 2016, like it's the day before yesterday. How, the, 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 the media, the journalists involved, some of them must have known, must have remembered. The fact that, yeah, it's, it's quoted, but nobody, nobody went back and did a quick Twitter search, went back to the archive and had a look. It, yeah, it was only gripped. Joe.ie were the only other ones who pointed out that I could say the Fine Gael had made this promise. But even they didn't do the basic tradecraft of he's claimed something, go back through the manifestos, pull the program for government, pull his tweets, pull the press releases about him from the period, see what he said. And to be honest, Michael, I, I kind of looked at that election because I figured if there was any time he had made those claims, it was going to be the election. Oh, absolutely. Because I, I don't know if I'm being fair if it's to Pascal by saying this. I have a notion that on other occasions, Pascal made statements rather throwing cold water on the idea. Absolutely. Both bef before the election and after the election, nonsense idea can't do it. During that brief period, 
And Michael, you know, it's 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 like that joke about goats. You only need to screw one. <laughs> and then forever afterwards, you are the guy that screwed a goat. I, just before we, we close, because this is this is actually... I didn't realise how much it irritated me until I was talking about it here. This was widely covered. Like, it's not that journalists weren't aware of it. It's not that they wouldn't cover it. But either no one wanted to tell people that... Donahue was not correct in what he was saying, and actually that's probably a bit of an issue, or just didn't think to check. I know. Before we finish up, Gary, there is just one very quick story which I, I think our, our, our listeners might enjoy, uh, because I, I, we are living at the moment in this particular government in the midst of the nudge theory, where governments believe through various different uh, bits of legislation, and usually it's by using some form of taxation or some kind of price signal, they can get people to stop doing bad things and to make them do good things, whether it's stop driving diesel cars and buy electric cars, or whether it's to stop drinking cheap vodka and to drink uh, elderflower tonic instead, whatever it is. And one of the things that's been debated, and I'm sure we're on the way to seeing sometime soon, is some kind of a sugar tax. And the way that these sugar taxes have tended to come in around the world has been very often they will start off on soft drinks because soft drinks tend to have a rather large amount of sugar in them, sugar uh, syrup, if they're obviously, obviously not diet drinks. Whatever. So anyway, uh, there was a, a study has been done looking at the effects of a sugar tax uh, which affected sodas or soft drinks in the city of Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. And the study was done by the University of, Chicago, of Illinois, Chicago, Researchers uh, Lisa M. Powell and Julian later, and they compared the sales of beer in Seattle, but before and after the adoption of the soda tax, and they compared it with comparable sales in Portland, which is a nearby city in Oregon, Seattle being in Washington State. And they discovered, you know, they found out, what well, the reason I, I, I'm referring to this is because this is not actually the first time this has happened. What they discovered was, Gary, that the soda tax, the study says, induced consumers to buy more beer now i don't know do you remember we did some work on nanny taxes nanny statism for the ebi and i wrote a few bits and pieces on studies have been done on the 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 success of the failure of most of these things and pretty well uh, the story is one of abject failure well they looked at the, the very first country in the world that introduced a soda tax to my memory was mexico mexico has a big problem with consumption of sugar and a big problem with obesity and they consume a lot of soft drinks. I'm told, I don't know if you've ever heard this, that you know, Coca-Cola is supposed to be different around the world, but many Americans have told me that Coca-Cola in Mexico is fantastic. Best Coca-Cola you'll get in the world. And maybe that's because they use... And I, I think the theory is that they use... They don't use what the Americans mostly use these days for sweeteners, which is uh, corn fructose, but they actually use sugar, cane sugar or something. I don't know. Anyway, they introduced this thing in Mexico, and on the foot of that, a number of places in the United States started to copy that. And Cor- anyway, Cornell University, this on this occasion, decided to look at the consequences, in some cases, of the introduction of soda tax. And they discovered, in the studies that they could, they, they, the, where they looked, bizarrely, an increase in the consumption of beer. So, and, and this, this, and this is a new study this time, as I say, by the University of Illinois, Chicago. And they again are finding that beer production, beer consumption rather increased. So, you know, it's not all bad news. Okay. I, I can see a sugar tax causing a change in consumption. That I think is, is perfectly expectable. Why beer though? Well, the first thing I'd say is that the 
the change in consumption as a response to sugar taxes actually tends to be uh, small and temporary. The first, the, 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 the fall in consumption tends to be much lower than the expected fall. And then if you go back two and three years later, and that's always, as you and I go, know, Gary, with these things, it's always the trick to go two and three years before and then two and three years afterwards, and you find all sorts of interesting things. So the sugar taxes actually tend, to, a lot of the time, will, will fizzle out. Well, I suppose the, the theory is that when you actually look at the cost profile with the levies that it, it, beer starts to become cheaper per gallon and that's the language that was used in one of the reports the gallon cost of beer starts to decrease in comparison to brand sodas so customers move over i don't know why beer i don't i suppose I, once upon a time beer people people used to drink beer instead of water um people drank beer because beer was a safe thing to drink and a lot of water was contaminated either with pollution or feces or cholera or typhoid. And therefore people would, people who could afford would drink beer. You know the phrase small beer? That's small beer. That actually comes from a time when they used to brew these very low alcohol beers in England. And it was the, that was your breakfast beer, Gary. You know, if you're going to have some, something to drink with breakfast, you'd have small beer because you want to have something to drink, but you know, you wouldn't want to be pissed on the way to work. So you'd have small beer because of low alcohol beer. What maybe people look at beer and they think, well, it's not it's not got sugar in it. Well, there is some sugar in beer, but people don't think of it as being sugary. So well, we'll have and it's fun and it's fizzy and you can you drink it cold with pizza. So instead of having a nice ice cold pizza uh, Coke or Fanta or whatever with your pizza, you're going you'll have a nice ice cold beer. And then the thing about beer, Gary, it's a bit like as any it was, was it what's that the English comedian, the one that sort of sounds Dickensian. Uh, Russell, was it Russell Brand used to say about heroin? It's very Moorish. And if you've always been drinking coke with your pizza and you start to drink beer, you're like, you know what? Actually, this beer stuff is really quite good. Works really well with the pizza. It cuts my thirst. And I'm getting the kind of buzz that I don't normally get from, from Fanta. So they're driving people into the arms of beer. And beer, it turns out people like it. When you, when you get people drinking beer, they go, oh, this is good stuff. We, 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 we can't know. But I, I suppose, shall we say, the slightly more serious point is that this is a perfect example of what we're always talking about, the problem with this kind of nudge policy from government. They assume that the population is out there is this kind of passive zombified group of individuals who, if you can do something to them, and they will just react exactly the way that you think they will. But the problem is that people actually are dynamic and entrepreneurial. And if you present them with a problem like this, that you're, make, you're going to make their soft drinks more expensive, a lot of them will find an alternative solution. But it's not the one that you had predicted, because being dynamic and chaotic and anarchic, they will, do, they will very often make choices that never occurred to you when you were sitting inside in the Department of Health or Finance. And they'll go off and they'll start drinking cold bottles of bud, which is not what you intended them to do in the first place. And I suspect we will find that this will be the case. In fact, I think we're already finding it is indeed the case when it comes to the minimum unit alcohol pricing. People are finding responses. You have a lot of bureaucrats who go, we'll make alcohol less attractive or we'll make whatever less attractive. And they are correct that consumption on that might fall. But then people replace it with other things, uh, possibly things that are worse for them. Very possibly. Almost like, Michael, now you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to follow this for a second. Almost like society 
Modern society is a complex organic structure that we don't really fully understand. And we don't really see how things link together for the most part. It's almost like that, Gary. And as you, you said, consumption may fall. Yes, it may. Do you know something else that may happen? Consumption may not fall, but revenues may fall because all the nice people decide to go and buy their alcohol in different jurisdictions like France or the United Kingdom and keep drinking the same amount. But now they've discovered all this cheap drink, as it was the case when the average cost of tobacco started to decline in the country because people started, an increasing number of people started to consume contraband tobacco products and for the first time in years a couple of years ago we saw an uptick in tobacco consumption if we start to drive people up to the north or over on the ferry to france and they suddenly discover that they can buy bottles of champagne for five quid and bottles of decent wine for two quid and a bottle of vodka for whatever they may say oh you actually do you know what let's have let's have a party let's have a party a little bit more regularly than we used to because the price of drink and we'll leave it here it's just the notion here that people are going to attack cheap drink is just so stupid because we've never had cheap drink not for a very very long time we only have expensive drink in ireland and if what was driving people's consumption was expensive drink well then that that would have already happened but all we're going to do now is drive them into the arms of the che- of the, of the cheaper retailers and we'll see what effects that has on the uh, just just before we go michael um what was the what's the initial legal response being to our wine club idea well yeah curiosity i would say i'm nobody so far has been willing to go on the record and say yes i think that this is perfectly legal i have i'm, I'm trying to get in contact with a an old fr- an old young friend of mine who is who's just finishing off his doctorate in Oxford, where he has been just offered a position teaching law there. And I know that he has at least one master's in European law. And I'm, I'm getting on and I'm waiting for him to get back to me. I'll put it this way. Nobody so far has laughed in my face and said, don't be silly. Of course you couldn't do that. I mentioned it to a barrister I know. And they said, well, of course, there would have to be safeguards in the law that were put in to stop this sort of thing. And then I just looked at him silently and he sort of trailed off. <laughs> After a second said, although maybe not, I suppose. <laughs> We shall see. Anyway, uh, we shall be back. Uh, if not before, we shall be back on Sunday. Um, and I suppose we should wish all you out there a good week. Mind yourselves. All the best. Bye-bye.